Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. I'm going to read that. First Peter 3, 8 through 12 says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain the blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So uh, last week, Pastor Ron covered verses 1 through 7 of this chapter, which talked about wives being submissive to their own husbands, and husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, and to show them honor. That's what we talked about last week. Today, uh, we move on uh, to verses 8 through 12, and it seems as if Peter is changing the subject all of a sudden and begins to talk about something else. Uh, In fact, if we go back to chapter 2, you'll notice that Peter got into the subject of submitting to the government, right? So he's going through these subjects. and again, as, he, as you move forward, 18 through 35, he jumps to the subject of slaves submitting to their masters. And then in chapter 3, he gets into the topic of husbands and wives. So, you know, now we're moving on to something else. And it seems almost as if Peter is suffering from a bad case of scatterbrains. But, but he's being very purposeful. Um, when you tie all these subjects together... And also consider the context, right? The people who he's talking about, or he's talking to, rather. You'll notice the key theme that binds all these subjects together. And that theme is how the gospel looks in all spheres of life. That's the theme of these um, subjects that he keeps jumping from one to to the next. So what does the gospel look like for a believer in his relationship with the government? And that seems relevant, especially now you know, for the, during the election uh, time, you know, thinking how is a Christian to be and act consistent with the gospel in relation to our government? We talked about that. You can, you can go back to our webpage and hear that uh, teaching. What does the gospel look like between the relationship of slave and master? We talked about that. What does the gospel look like in marriage? How about an unequally yoked marriage, which seems to be the case here in 1 Peter 3? Now, as we get into today's passage, Peter begins with the word, finally, not because he's finishing his letter, but because he's addressing the last subject of the series of what the gospel looks like in all spheres of life. So uh, what is this last point? His last point, which we're going to cover today, is what does the gospel look like within the community of believers, within us? How does the gospel flesh out? And I'm going to divide it in three points. Okay, my three points are this. Number one, harmonious unity. Right? You'll see in the passage that we, we're going to read, and I'll read it again, that the first point is unity in a way that is harmonious. There's harmony within the people of God. The second point is blessing others as a calling. So as Christians, the scriptures tell us that 
we were called to bless others, and we'll flesh that out as I, as I go through it. And then point number three is practical righteousness. Okay? What are some of the practical things that we do among the community of God, um, and, and what are those practical um, examples of righteousness? So beginning with the first point, harmonious unity. Um, the passage, again, begins with finally, right? That's, that's the last point of the series of points that he was making. He says, finally, all of you have unity. Let me go back to it. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Okay, now, you would think, right, that this church, uh, this church specifically that was facing various trials, which might have included persecution, would be a church that has already been purged enough to the point that they would have already arrived at a high level of unity and humility and love for one another. However, we see Peter addressing this issue again. He's needing to remind them multiple times to love one another, to have unity, that sort of thing. Uh, For example, in in the beginning of chapter 2, Peter addresses the issue of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, right? And further on in chapter 4, you'll see that Peter exhorts his people to keep loving one another earnestly. So there's a need for the church, even though they were being persecuted, to, to continue to be reminded that they have to love each other and to be united. Well, that's the reality of the church. It's, it's, a, it's a constant need to be reminded that we have to love each other, fortunately. Again, this was a message that the believers had to constantly be reminded of. And I'm sure for all of you today, you know, you know from experience that it can be very challenging to have unity in mind and love for one another uh, since we're all very different. We're all coming from different backgrounds. um, And and that can be a big challenge, especially since we're all growing in our sanctification and none of us are perfect. And so uh, sometimes there's clashes between people and members of the church. Nevertheless, we see that it is commanded for the believer to pursue this lifestyle, right? Loving one another and having unity in mind. And we are to pursue it wholeheartedly. Now, going back to the text, uh, in verse 8, Peter points out five characteristics in which he calls believers to obtain. Look closely at, at those characteristics here. Uh, the first one is unity of mind. Second one is sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Now, let's start with the first one, uh, which is unity of mind. What does Peter mean when he says that we ought to have unity of mind? I'll open up the floor for thoughts. What does he mean that we ought to have unity of mind? Yeah, so doctrine and, and, and the gospel. Yeah, unity of doctrine and gospel. Yeah, which that's is basically, that's basically that's around the word of God. Amen. Amen. You know, what the word of God says, we can be in your unity. Right. So we have major doctrines. Amen. So we have the standard of truth, which is a scripture, and we all submit to that, and that's what makes unity of mind. It's a good answer. Um, and I think I think uh, as we as we dig into some other verses, we'll see more um, what, what that means. 
Let's look at 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Can someone read that? Amen. So here we see the command, you see it in the middle, where it says, agree with one another. And again, it might seem unrealistic or, or an unrealistic expectation for us to all agree with one another. But it's important to understand the point of that command. The command is not saying that we should all have identical thoughts. However, it is saying that we should pursue like-mindedness. Other translations say, be of one mind. This is only possible if we sit, like, like, you, guys sit, like you guys said, if we sit under the teaching of the word. Um, and it, again, as you sit and you hear the preaching and all of us are together, we're all being transformed. Our minds are being renewed as we sit as a community, right? Not in isolation, like you over there at home with your uh, podcast, listening to your favorite preacher, and you're growing this way and the church is growing that way. But being committed to a body of believers and sitting under the preached word and growing together, making that effort, right? Um, I love uh, when Lloyd uh, shoots over in the, uh, we have a chat room thing, and he shoots over sermons of Pastor Jack. And I love that because I, I know that he is promoting the teaching of our church so that we're all in unity of mind. And that's one of the things that I admire. Yeah. Harmonious makes me think of harmony. Right. Right. The drums is not the guitar, and right. the flute is not the piano, but they all have a harmonious spirit, and they come together, and they're all different. Yeah. They, all, they all come together, so it's the same when you were saying, we don't right. think the same. We are not thinking the same thoughts, but when we come together, like right. when I talk to you, I try to harmonize with you. Right. By not where you're at, and so on, and we sort of sing together. Yeah, amen. It's, it's complementary, right? We complement each other in a way that we're in a sense, singing in one voice, um, learning in um, one train of thought. Uh, so allowing the word to do that, which, which, is, which is actually very rare to see in any kind of community, a group of people that are so united in one mind, and that I think you can only see that in, in a community of believers in a church. Yeah. To tack on to what you were saying, in a, in a musician-type atmosphere, it's easy when everybody's in harmony pick up the one bad note. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You laugh, but think about it. In a church where everybody's work, talking about the same thing right. and talking about you know one thing and someone comes in, it's easy to it's sometimes easy to spot the wolf. That's right. That's a great point. Uh, I wish I would have said that. <laughs> that was really good. Um, and the reason why and, and that's very profound because when you think about it, uh, let's just say you're an outsider and you're coming into this community of believers and everyone's just different. One person's against, you know, that group of people in the church. Um, you, can, you can spot out that incorrect note. Um, anyway, I don't want to steal your thunder, so. Yeah, All right. <laughs> that was excellent, though. That was great. See, this is the basic point of harmony. The, the way you bring the subject, you allow other thoughts to complement yours. Amen. So you're not forced to have to think about everything. That's right. In the first place, it's not possible. Right. But at the same time, we rejoice at what is being brought to the table. Like, I rejoice at what he has said as well as what you said. Amen. Amen. Excellent. Good stuff. So, uh, yeah. So, again, this is this, this uh, 
thing is only possible if we sit under the word of God, right? That is what changes everyone from different backgrounds and brings us together in one mind. Uh, Again, this requires being patient with one another, right, and building each other up. But we do it with the word of God and uh, motivated by the word of God. Here's another verse that I thought was very interesting. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. I'm going to tell you how that relates to what we're talking about. Can someone read it? Now, I've read this many times, and it, sometimes it, it, it's confusing. I don't know what to think about the second part, right? Love bears all things, believes all things. What does it mean that love believes all things? Uh, it, you know, it, does that mean that we just believe everything? <laughs> it believes all things because I love you all and I believe all things? Um, well, let me backtrack. The reason why I wanted to share that verse is that I think it, it speaks profoundly about the subject of having unity in mind. Um, notice that it reads believes all things, but it it's believes all things as a fruit of love, right? Love, in other words, love believes all things. Uh, when the church is called to pursue unity of mind, one of the reasons why it becomes difficult to have unity of mind is because of our suspicion towards one another. Um, and this is understandable since we're all sinners and none of us are really reliable in and of ourselves. Yet when we come to a passage like this, where it tells us that love believes all things, we now have to question our love for one another, right? Do you believe all things? Uh, What does it say about your love towards one another? The question, again, is what does it mean that love believes all things? Any suggestions, any thoughts? Okay. Very true. Check your thoughts. Yeah. If you're thinking poorly about somebody, mm-hmm. ask the Lord to forgive you, change you. Yes. You don't want to lose discernment, right. but at the same time, you want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yes. Excellent. Because you're not. That's right. Amen. Amen. There's no room for anything else to be added, so that was perfect. Um, <laughs> um, when it says that love believes all things, it doesn't mean that we are to be naive, right, in thinking that everything is true. <clears throat> Rather, it is to express love towards your neighbor by giving any report the benefit of the doubt, rather than having a spirit of the, you know, contrarian. Um, this is contrary to the love that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians, right? Um, let, let me back it up. I'm going to read a quote from... Uh, John Gill, he's an 18th century uh, Calvinist Baptist guy, and he says this, uh, and, and he's speaking about that, that verse, that idea of love believing all things. He says this, and I quote, that are to be believed, all that God says in his word, all his truths and all his promises, and even sometimes in hope against hope, as Abraham did, relying upon the power, faithfulness, and other perfections of God. Though such a man will not believe every spirit, every preacher, and every teacher, nor any, but such as agree with the scriptures of the truth, the standard of faith and practice, nor will he believe every word of man, which is the character of a weak and foolish man. Indeed, a man of charity or of love is willing to believe all the good things reported of men. He is very credulous 
of such things and is unwilling to believe ill reports of persons or any ill of men unless it is open and glaring and is well supported. And there is full evidence of it. He is very incredulous in this respect. End quote. Um, so the, in summary, uh, the unity of mind is only achieved through receiving sound doctrine. We know that. Uh, which establishes truth for all believers. But secondly, the true gospel love towards one another uh, in a way that is willing to believe all good report about each other. And at the same time, again, this is what love looks like. You're quick to doubt negative reports unless it's well supported with sufficient evidence. So if you're the type of person Again, if we're all seeking unity of mind, but you're the type of person that is constantly suspicious about everyone, you, you can't even sit through a preaching of the sermon because you know, you're questioning the character of the person or you're questioning the study of the person. Um, you're, 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 instead of giving the person the benefit of the doubt, or even when you're in a classroom setting like this um, and, and we're sharing scripture and we're sharing thoughts about the Bible, if you're the person that's constantly suspicious and pushing back and and they're guilty until proven innocent, then that, that's not going to help build the unity of mind. But we're called to do the opposite. We're called to believe all things in the sense where we give the person the benefit of the doubt. And when um, something negative is said about a person, we reject it until we see sufficient evidence. And I think in that, with that spirit, with that attitude, it, it advances, it supports the unity of mind in the church. Um, so, so that's what it means to have unity of mind. The next uh, virtue that we saw in uh, verse 8 was uh, sympathy. So the question is, why must we be sympathetic towards one another? If one person is down, should everyone else feel down with them? The answer is that first and foremost, there is a reality about the nature of the church that has to be considered when we think about whether or not we ought to be uh, sympathetic towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Um, when, 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 a, when one of your brothers and sisters in Christ are feeling down or they're hurt or something's going on in their spiritual life, you know, it's easy because, because that happens so much in the church. It's easy to be, you know, uh, closed off about it and not be sympathetic towards your uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's important that we, we understand first and foremost what the church is, essentially, right? What the nature of the church is, essentially, in order for us to understand um, how we ought to live amongst each other. And the verse that I thought of was Romans 12, 5, which says, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. That's a statement. That's a statement about the reality of the nature of the church. Now notice that this passage Right? So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. That passage has nothing to do with your feelings. Isn't that interesting? Has nothing, it cares not about your feelings right there. Right? It's not, it's stating a fact about the reality of the church. Right? And it's not suggesting that you are to act like your brother and sister in Christ is your family member because you're one in Christ and because it looks beautiful. It's a beautiful picture when you hug one another and love one another um, in a way that is, in a sense, superficial. 
it, it's not suggesting that you do it because it's cute and it's beautiful. On the contrary, the passage is telling you about a reality about yourself that gives no room for objection, right? If you are saved, you are part of the body, and that's the end of the story. There's no room for um, pondering about your relationship with people, even though that, that can be a factor on how you get along with people. But the reality is that even if you were to be a distant type of Christian, where you don't feel like fellowshipping, it doesn't change the fact that you are part of the body. It, you know, you just happen to be stewarding that reality uh, incorrectly. So, again, on the contrary, this passage is telling you a reality about yourself that gives no room for objection. If you're born again, you are a member of one another, and that's it. There's no room for discussion. You may be a very distant and unfaithful member, or one that prefers isolation, but nonetheless, you're a member, and you're forced to face that reality. And, and, and that's it. <clears throat> Further on, we see in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 26. Can someone read that? Yeah, so here we see the weight of that reality, right? It, again, this is not giving you room for... Um, you know, your feelings. This is telling you a reality about the church that has nothing to do with your feelings. It's simply saying if one member suffers, all suffer together, and that's a reality about the church. And you have to keep that in mind because you have to deal with that in the end of the day, regardless of whether you want to or not. <clears throat> now, often many people speak about this text in a very strange, I've heard very strange uh, interpretations of this passage, um, almost like, uh, like a weird supernatural way. Um, They'd, they'd speak about this passage like, you know, we're united. If I suffer, you suffer. So, like, if, it's like if you trip on your way here, I feel it in my knee. Um, that's not what it means that when one suffers, I suffer here. Right? Like, if you got a cold, I'm like, you know, like, oh, man, do you have a cold? That, that's not what it's saying. That, that's not the type of unity that it's, it's talking about. That's a big misreading. Um, but a good example of the unity that we have in the body of Christ is like that of a marriage. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going I'm to break that down. It's easy for a couple, think about this, it's easy for a couple who, who are only dating, right? They're not married yet. And I don't want to say this about all, all couples, but it's easier for couples who are just dating, they're not married yet, to feel free to insult their partner or to embarrass them because it doesn't, necessarily affect you, right? There's still an, another individual. Uh, many times, one of the partners may complain about the other partner to friends at work, right? So, you know, she goes to work and she just tells all her girlfriends about, you know, how lousy her boyfriend is. She might say to her, she might say to her co-workers that he doesn't treat me like the queen that I am. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the girlfriends go and they tell, they tell her, you know what, girl, you're amazing. And you can do so much better. Um, that's, just, that's just what happens. And <laughs> yeah, and then the, the he, right, the other partner, he goes out with the guys and he tells the guys how she doesn't give him space. Right? He's trying to watch the game, and you know, he, he, 
she doesn't give him space, and, and she's trying to change him, right? It's so easy to do that when, when you're not one, right? But when you're married, especially if you're a Christian, when you're married, you'll start to realize that your wife or your husband, in a sense, directly represents you. <clears throat> and to insult your spouse or, or say something negative about your spouse, it actually speaks more about you than them. Isn't that interesting? I can't do that anymore. Not that I ever did that before, but um, but there's there's a unity in marriage that God designed in such a way that makes it very difficult for one of the parties to live and act individualistically. It's just you're one with that person, and that's the end of the story. <clears throat> if my wife is suffering. There's no way that I can continue on living my life like nothing is wrong. My wife's suffering. I'm going to feel it. <clears throat> because if one suffers, the other one pays for it in their own suffering. And just like marriage, just like marriage, it, it's this kind of unity that makes us sympathetic towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is speaking of the unity that we have in Christ and the implications of that that we have towards one another. That unity is real. Um, and again, <clears throat> this ought to remind us not to be quick to bash other churches in evangelicalism. Be slow to do that uh, because in the midst of a lot of these churches are brothers and sisters in Christ. The next virtue is, yes, That's right. Yes, perfectly. That's a that's a perfect verse. I think I think it it applies so much that way with our union with the believers in Christ. That's a good verse. Yeah, Daniela. Also, with sympathy, in my opinion, it's not my sympathy to go along with your saying or thing, but it's Christ's compassion. Amen. And sympathy that rises in, and I have to, for me to have sympathy, I have to consider the other person, mm. what they're going through and how it's affecting them. That's right. Not necessarily how it would affect me, right. but how, and so to me, sympathy is, first of all, starts with consideration. That's right. And to consider what other members of, of the body of Christ are going through. That's right. And how they're suffering from it. Yeah. You know, and Amen. I don't have to agree or disagree. Right. I can just feel for them with Christ feeling through me, not Amen. necessarily my. Because all of this is God's love in me. That's right. It's impossible for me to love other people the way that it's talking about. It's Christ Amen. flowing through me. Amen. That loves other people this way. If I allow him, if I put my self-life aside right. and love people with God's love, let it flow through me, Amen. I'm going to be able to do this. But if I just look at this from my own advantage point, I don't love anybody like I love myself. That's right. You yeah, know what I mean? yeah you, you make a great point. I yeah. think uh, it's important to recognize that it's only really through the Spirit of God that we can really do that. In our flesh, we, we probably wouldn't be sympathetic. I mean, yeah. Very good. Thank you, Diana Lynn. And uh, the, the next virtue is brotherly love. <clears throat> and uh, 
this seems to be the most important virtue that ties all the other virtues together. Brotherly love is repeated in, in Peter, in the book of Peter, uh, many times. You see it in chapter 1, verse 22, 2.11, 2.17, 5.9, 4.12, 5.9. So it's, this theme of brotherly love is, is very much a part of Peter's writing. And uh, to this I turn to another commentary by John Gill. I want to read regarding brotherly love. Uh, he says this, and I quote, uh, Brotherly love, not in a natural and civil, but in a spiritual relation, being children of God and brethren of Christ and in a gospel church state, and whose love to each other ought to be universal, fervent, without dissimulation, and as Christ has loved them, and which should show itself in praying for each other, in bearing one another's burdens, in forgiving each other, in admonishing in love, and building up one another in their most holy faith, and communicating to each other both in temporals and spirituals, and of a very excellent nature it is. It is the bond of perfectness and evidence of regeneration, the glory and ornament of a profession, and without which it is nothing. And what renders the, commun the communion of the saints, which each other pleasant and profitable, comfortable to themselves, and honorable in the eyes of others, and to which they should be induced from the consideration of the love of God and Christ unto them, and from their relation to each other as brethren. And I, yeah. Where can we find those folks? Uh, let's see. Because the, they're, they're so yeah. good that just hearing you doesn't cut it. Yeah, amen. Well, he has a... Uh, a whole set of commentaries on, on scripture. So if you were to just search John Gill, you can probably purchase a commentary. Um, the, he has a commentary on first Peter. You can, you can, you can look that up or even just Google it and you'll, you'll get all kinds of quotes from uh, John Gill. I think I, I've been digging into him more recently. So you got it online? Yeah. You can just hit that Google type his name John and you'll get, quotes. yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, and what I love about this quote is his emphasis on this love, this brotherly love that's streaming from our union with Christ, right? It's not a love that's informed by the media. It's not a love that's informed by your favorite uh, romantic movie. It's love that's informed by Scripture, which tells us plainly that this love comes from our union with Christ. So to that I say amen. Now, you'll notice... That when Peter lists each virtue, right, in uh, verse 8, he did it using a literary form called chiasm, which is like a pyramid with words, right? Uh, an example is A, B, C, B, A. You see that pyramid? A, B, C, B, A. So it's, it's like A, unity of mind, B, sympathy, and then on the top of the pyramid you have brotherly love. And then he goes back down, right, to tender heart, which is synonymous with sympathy. And then he goes to the last point, which is synonymous with the first point, or somewhat related to the first point, which is humble mind, which again relates to the unity of mind. So I say that because for the sake of time, I'm not going to go on to the other two points. It, it pretty much covers the same um, idea. <clears throat> Let's go on to the second point. Second point is blessing others as a calling. Let's look at verse 9. So 1 Peter 3, 9. Can someone read that? 
Yeah, so I want to show you other verses that pretty much say the same thing. Uh, Romans 12, 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And then 1 Corinthians 4, 12 says, And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. So we see that Paul, right, this is Paul's writing, and Peter, right, which we read in verse 9, they have the same theology. When someone does evil to you, you bless them. Okay? Now this, this feels very counterintuitive, But the question is, where did they get these ideas from? Who originated this concept of when someone hurts you, you bless them? That's very strange if you really think about it. No one in the world thinks that that's a good idea. Peter is telling believers not to pay evil with evil. And that is profoundly countercultural. Yet we know that this is what the Messiah taught. This is what Jesus taught in Luke 6, 28 and 29. Jesus teaches, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Now for the world, and for the unbeliever, that's absurd. Pray for those who hurt you? Bless those who curse you? For the unbeliever, this is absurd and ridiculous because this seems to be very unjust. This, is, this doesn't make any sense. They would say, if, if you take from me, then I should be able to take from you. If you hurt me, I should be able to hurt you. People should get what they deserve. That's what unbelievers would say. But the problem with that standard of justice is that, is that this is a standard, right? I, I ought to get, give you what you gave me. If you hurt me, I should hurt you. You should receive justice. That standard is a standard that every single one of you, and me including have failed to live up to ever since we were born. How many of you have lived consistently with that? You, you, everything that you have, you gained it and you earned it yourself. Raise your hand if that's been you. No. We've all received grace some way or another. So when the unbeliever finds the principle of blessing those, um, that, that concept, blessing those who hurt us, when they see that as something absurd, It's not because the principle itself is crazy, but rather that the unbeliever may be too proud to admit that he or she is a hypocrite when it comes to living justly. And I I throw myself in there. And I'm a Christian. Um, And so we have to understand that if, if we all want justice, then in a sense we all fall short of it and we all fail to, to achieve it. The way that we treat people can't be on the basis of an eye for an eye. Because if that was the case, we'd all be blind and I'd be missing eyes. <clears throat> what we really need is grace. And so as a Christian, we ought to recognize that we too fail in our morality and our obedience to God's word. And we have to rely on grace 
towards one another and in the way that we treat uh, one another. Therefore, the way that we treat others will determine our own self-estimation. Right? You can tell when a person has a bad estimation of themselves um, and their own sin and their failure simply by observing the amount of mercy and grace that they have towards others. Have you ever seen a person who's not merciful and not grace, graceful? It's because they don't understand themselves. It's because when they look in the mirror, they don't actually see who they really are. Right? They have a bad estimation of themselves. They assume that they too do not need mercy and grace. But you want to see someone who recognizes that they're, they fall short, that they're a sinner, and they, they don't live consistently with justice and perfect law, obedience. That's a person who's really graceful and merciful towards his neighbor and towards one another. And that, that's, that's, the, that's the way that you can spot those people. And that should be a defining mark, a characteristic of a Christian. None of us can uh, achieve perfect righteousness apart from the grace of God. And so we extend that reality, we extend that grace towards one another because we've been changed with that reality as well. Now Jesus, being sinless, took upon himself the sins of the world and reviled nobody. And yet what he offers to those who sin against him is grace and mercy. Jesus' love for undeserved sinners ought to be the driving theology of our love towards one another. And that's what we, that's what we see in verse 9. Uh, verse 9, it says, For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. This is a call to Peter's audience, but also to us as believers, blessing others as our calling. This is a calling, a vocation. And the blessing that we receive in the end is eternal life. Not because this is the way to receive it, but these are identifying marks of a true Christian, recipients of salvation. All right, last point. <clears throat> last point is practical righteousness. Let's go ahead and uh, read the remaining verses. Uh, verses 10 through 12. Can someone read it? Thanks, brother. So here, Peter begins with the word for. You see for, which means that he is elaborating the point that he was making right before it. He's just expanding it, expounding it. And what he's addressing here is the Christian's call to bless others that we too may obtain a blessing. And he elaborates on this point as as you read here. What he's doing is he's quoting Psalm 34 verses 12 through 16. It's almost exact. He's, he's quoting it. I'll show you here. It says, what, a man, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Um, so, again, in both First Peter and the Psalm, uh, Psalms, Psalm 34, we see real practical instruction from Christ, on Christian living, right? You see instruction on how we ought to live, how we ought to um, 
you know, live out righteously. And in summary, it says that life and good days accompany those who keep their tongue from speaking deceit and to those who turn away from evil and do good. We also see in both passages the command to seek peace and pursue it. And towards the end of these passages, it says, for the eyes of the Lord, right? You see here in verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Now, in, in its historical context, right, Psalm 34 would have referred to life and blessing in this world, in the temporal world. The temporal blessings that may come from living righteously and abstaining from evil. However, Peter is quoting Psalm 34 to a people who were facing a lot of persecution and were being tested by various trials uh, as we read in the beginning of 1 Peter. And it would seem odd that Peter would be talking about temporal blessings or a way to get temporal blessings. Especially since earlier in the letter, he emphasizes uh, imperishable inheritance that, that we'll receive in the end. In other words, it doesn't seem like Peter, his focus is on the temporal blessings, like doing good and then you'll get these blessings. Because he's talking, about, he's talking to people who are being killed and persecuted for Christ. And his, his emphasis is the coming of Christ, the glory of the inheritance that is to come. He's, he, he doesn't have in mind being blessed temporarily. Therefore, when, when Peter quotes Psalm 34, it seems that he's reading it typologically. What, what that means is that he's looking at a historical passage and he's seeing the passage in light of the new covenant. He's seeing the passage in light of the fact that Jesus has come and Jesus has explained that everything that you've read in the Old Testament applies to him. It applies to the promises that are in him. And we know all those promises are promises that are spiritual. Those are spiritual promises that we will see the fullness of in the end, in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, So with that in mind, it's hard to believe that Peter's focus was on on the temporary, right? He's he's reading it typologically. uh, And although I'm sure Peter would affirm what the passage signified historically, he believed that it was a pointer to a greater fulfillment, right? All the temporal blessings were merely just a pointer to something bigger. And what is this great fulfillment of Psalm 34? First of all, it's to consider the reality that the righteous will not receive the fullness of life and the fullness of good days, or neither will they arrive in the fullness of peace on this earth. This was obvious to Peter's audience since they were facing a lot of persecution. But as pilgrims, the greater fulfillment is that we will receive those blessings in the end. At the return of Jesus Christ, who himself is the fulfillment of all these things, right? Peace and goodness. Uh, you know, we may taste it now, right, as Christians. We, we, we feel at peace. We live uh, enjoying the goodness of God. But we don't experience goodness in its full expression, right? We still live in a world with uh, sin. We still live in the body filled with sin. So uh, although you may have peace you'll notice throughout your life that your peace is often disturbed by sin. Your, your, the, the things that you enjoy, like I, even when I sit and have a good meal, I'm like, oh, this meal is so good. 
this, um, this chicken is so good that my wife made. Um, it ends, right? It has an ending. It, 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 it stops at one point. I know that sounds like gluttonous. <laughs> like, Will, calm down. I know the chicken is good. But, but in other words, everything that you experience on this earth that is good, it has an end to it, right? It finishes. When you take a vacation, a summer break, uh, or a vacation from your job, you know how it feels that last day when you know you have to go back to work the following day. It's just it's the worst feeling of the world. And I, you know, I get on my knees and I rip my shirt and I say, God, um, how can this be <laughs> that my vacation is finishing and I have to go back to, um, you know, the office? And that is a hint. That is a preview. That is a, a, a hint of reality, a wake-up call that what we have on this earth is, is, is not enough. Right? And if you feel that way, let's say you're not a believer. If you're not a believer, if you feel that way, that's a hint from God saying that you weren't made for the temporal. You were made for the eternal. Uh, and that hunger, that desire is a testimony that, that God has eternal life. And in him, in his son, is eternal life. This is the fulfillment. This is the blessing, the promise that uh, Peter is trying to address when he quotes Psalm 34. Um, and again, the commands that we see there, right? To keep our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceit and to turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. All those things are good. Those are imperatives that we ought to obey regardless, right? But we do so never with the expectation of good fortune while we're here on this earth, but rather we do it with the hope that when Jesus returns in the final consummation of the new heavens and the, earth, and the new earths, those promises belong to us by virtue of what Christ did on the cross. And so, you know, if, if you don't know Christ, um, recognize that um, these promises are not promised to you apart from Christ. No man can, can gain eternal life through human means, your ways of justifying yourself, trying to uh, please God by your religious works. But if you through faith, have union in Christ. These promises are yours. In conclusion, Peter is insisting that a transformed life is necessary in order to obtain the inheritance that he speaks about. It's a testimony that God has truly transformed your heart, your heart through the gospel. And throughout this letter, he gives us these examples of godly living in relation to government. He tells us how, how we ought to relate to government, slaves and masters, what the gospel looks like in marriage, and finally, what we talked about today, what the gospel looks like as we interact with the community of believers. So as Christians, as we pass through this world, let us also pursue the way of living as a testimony of the gospel. Uh, let, let your lifestyle be an example of the hope that we have in Christ as we wait for his return. Uh, and that, that concludes the study for today. Next week, we'll, talk about, uh, we'll go through verses 13 through 17. Uh, but any any questions or comments? Yes.
Thank you for today's conference. Anyone else? Norman? I hope you're not wearing that red shirt to work. <laughs> no. No. I won't. I threw it away. No. It didn't actually happen. <laughs> Anyone else? Yes. I guess uh, this seems to be a big issue. Is, you know, we need to be more united in past our churches, all of all churches. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Anyone else? Good. Okay. Let me go ahead and pray. Close this out. Our Father, we thank you for this passage that we were able to discuss. <clears throat> Lord, we ask that in light of what we've read, that we would pursue unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, these things, that our relationship towards one another be gospel-centered and never repaying evil with evil, but rather obeying our calling, which is to bless one another. May our hope never be centered on the temporal blessings, but that which is imperishable as we long for a better city, united with you for eternity. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.